Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. episode 30 of the History Books and Wine podcast. Tonight, I'm your host, Eliza Knight, USA Today bestselling author of Scottish historical romance with irresistible heroes, courageous heroines, and daring adventure. Under my name, E. Knight, I write rip-your-heart-out historical fiction that crosses landscapes around the world. Tonight, I'm going to be talking with you about three different fascinating torture devices. In the olden days, and in some cultures still today, it was believed that only through pain and suffering could a person achieve innocence for their crimes. Torture devices ranged from mild to deadly. Oh yes, we are going to have fun tonight. But first, I need to tell you what I'm drinking with my torture. I am having the last of my canned wines, which uh, definitely can't be the last. I'll have to go back and get some more. But this one is a California Pinot Noir, and it's called Cycles Gladiator. And there's a picture of a bicycle with wings and looks like a naked lady, like angel maybe, nymph. And on the back of the can... It says, made from some of California's best vineyards, this sexy and sultry Pinot Noir is a perfect accompaniment to all your patio, poolside, barbecue, biking, and deep sea fishing endeavors. I'm going to add to that podcasting endeavors. Flavors of bright cherries and ripe red fruits abound. Enjoy! So now you can hear me popping my can. (laughs) Hopefully this time it doesn't explode. Of course it didn't explode. No bubbles. This is a red wine. I'm going to taste it for the first time with you. Very refreshing. I love it. It's actually really, really good. On to the torture. The first item is the Scold's Bridle. The Scold's Bridle was created as a shaming torture device. It is sometimes also called a Witch's Bridle, the Gossip's Bridle, or a Brank's Bridle. A Scold, just so we can see where this name of this uh, implement came from, a Scold is a woman who is constantly displeased or nags too much. And a bridle, you should be familiar with this because it is the metal bit that's put into a horse's mouth to tell them which direction to go when you're riding them. So this scold's bridle was made of an iron muzzle that was set in an iron frame that surrounded the head like a mask. The bridle bit would be slid either under the tongue or on top of the tongue. So it either pressed down on it to prevent them from speaking or pressed up so the tongue was against the palate. Some bridles also had spikes on it so that if you tried to speak at all, you'd pierce your tongue or the palate of your mouth. The Brink's bridle had an adjustable gag with a sharp edge that would result in laceration if one tried to speak. And then there was yet another one that had a spike on both the top and the bottom of the bit, not just one side, that would puncture both your tongue and palate at the same time if you tried to speak. The wearer of the instrument would often excessively salivate and also the muscles of their mouth would grow very tired. I can't imagine wearing something like this. It's got to have been just awful, just awful. So the first recorded use of the Scold's Bridle was in Scotland in 1567. A woman named Bessie Telfier, not sure if I pronounced that right, uh, slandered someone else named Bailey Thomas Hunter in Edinburgh, saying that he was using false measures. She was sentenced to be blanket 
and fixed to the cross for one hour. The cross would be um, like the center of town so that people could come by and uh, torment her further with this uh, helmet that she was wearing that would not allow her to comment back. And all she said was basically that he was using false measures. I believe the false measures was something to do with uh, his land and farming. So she might have accused him of something. And because of that, Maybe she was wrong, maybe she wasn't. She was called a scold and tortured. Uh, soon it was common uh, throughout Europe. The instrument was often inflicted on female transgressors who were considered to be rude, nags, gossipers, or scolds. They were women whose speech was considered troublesome. Though women were the most common to wear the bridle, it was uh, worn by men, but very, very rarely. With the bridle in place, the scolds were paraded through town, some women by their own husbands, often on a leash, and then displayed at the town center not only for public humiliation, but also to display to others the consequences of troublesome talk. Violence toward the victim was not discouraged, meaning people could do it and no one would say anything. In Germany, a bell was added to the top of the bridle, so like a bell on top of the head, that would draw more attention to the wearer's walk of shame, which this kind of reminds me of that episode in Game of Thrones where Cersei is walking down the street with someone ringing a bell behind her going, shame, shame. Um, basically, the scold's bridle would do that for her. It is speculated that the scold's bridle was first brought to England by James I of Scotland, uh, the sixth of England, and that he encouraged harsh punishment for women, believing in the presence of witches. His fear of witches um, may have stemmed earlier than this, but one recorded note says that he had about 70 to 200, not sure exactly the number of women put on trial for witchcraft in North Berwick after storms raged the sea um, near where he was on his way to Denmark to collect his bride. So he blamed the witches in the Berwick area, which was near where his ship was, when all these storms happened and weren't allowing him to do that. It's said that about 4,000 witches have been burned at the stake in Scotland. And uh, I so want to talk about witches too. So that we're going to have to save for another podcast. But suffice it to say, these women were horrifically tortured and James of Scotland, the first of his name there and the sixth of his name in England, brought the Scold's Bridal to England for uh, the torture of the women there. So during the 16th and 17th century, there was much concern for women speaking out, defying their husbands, rioting, challenging priests, a preoccupation with making them behave channeled into this contraption that made them shut up whenever they had a complaint. It's really, really very sad. There is a description documented in 1656 from Dorothy Waugh who wore the bridle as punishment. And I'm actually going to read to you what she herself wrote about it. Upon the seventh day, about the time called Michaelmas in the year of the world's account, 1655, I was moved of the Lord to go into the market of Carlisle to speak against all deceit and ungodly practices. And the mayor's officer came and violently hailed me off the cross and put me in prison, not having anything to lay at my charge. And presently, the mayor came up where I was and asked me from whence I had come. And I said, out of Egypt, where thou lodgest. But after these words, he was so violent and full of passion, he scarce asked me any more questions, but called to one of his followers to bring the bridle, as he called it, to put it upon me, and was to be on for three hours. And that which they called so was like a steel cap, and my hat being violently plucked off, which was pinned to my head, whereby they tore my clothes to put on the bridle, as they called it, which was a stone weight of iron by the relation of their own generation, and three bars of iron to come over my face, and a piece of it was put into my mouth, which was so unreasonably big a thing for that place as cannot be well related, which was locked to my head, and so I stood there a time with my hands bound behind me with the stone weight of iron upon my head, and the bit in my mouth, to keep me from speaking. And the mayor said he would make an example of all that should ever come in that name. 
and the people to see me so violently abused were broken into tears, but he cried out to all of them and said, For foolish pity one may spoil a whole city, and the man that kept the prison door demanded two pence for everyone that came to see me while the bridle remained upon me. So that's pretty horrible. Um, and just in relation to her, she was one of the disciples of James Parnell, and um, this was the treatment she described after having preached for him publicly. So it had to do with, I guess, what they might have considered hearsay. And that is all I have for you today on the Skulls Bridal. So next up is number two, the Iron Maiden. Now, if you thought having your head placed in a contraption that might cut your tongue or the roof of your mouth was bad, I'm here to tell you about something a little worse. And that's the Iron Maiden. I'm going to take a sip of my wine real quick. Think of an upright, human-sized, and human-shaped box made of iron and wood, or just iron, lined with spikes. Often these spikes were put in places that would pierce important organs and maybe even pierce the eyeballs. Though the box can be plainly built, oftentimes it was embellished with the face of the Virgin Mary, giving it another name of the Virgin. The spikes were positioned in a way that would pierce the skin just enough to draw blood and be painful, but not necessarily to kill right away. Though a victim could slowly bleed to death or cause infection because I doubt they cleaned it. Others might have been fashioned to not pierce the skin unless the victim moved from muscle fatigue. So you might not get hurt at all unless you, you know, fell back or forward or slouched just a little bit. There are conflicting reports about whether the Iron Maiden was used in the medieval era or not. Some say it was an 18th century rumor used to heighten the belief that the people of the Middle Ages were uncivilized. But one only has to look at the other methods of torture during that time to believe that the Iron Maiden is probably not even the worst of them. However, this fascination with the Iron Maiden took hold in, with a frenzy in the 19th century, with replicas being built and placed in museums. Some report that the barrel of shame from the medieval era was mistaken for the Iron Maiden, which had a similar shape but no spikes within it. People wore this cloak of shame for public humiliation. It is kind of like the stocks, but it was, you know, a barrel that went over them with this head-shaped thing. Maybe their face could be seen through instead of being placed in stocks. So the first historical usage of the name Iron Maiden came in the 1700s from a German philosopher, Johann Philipp Siebenkies. He claimed a coin forager in 1515 was executed by being placed in the Iron Maiden. Most people believe he made the story up as the history behind the device that was being used during that time to torture witches and others opposed to the Christian church. But this is not the first reference of a nail-studded box that people were being placed in or upon as a method of torture. The Greek historian Polybius, who lived around the year 100 BC, shared a story of an iron-studded woman. In his story, he claimed the Spartan Nabis had a likeness of his wife Apica uh, created uh, out of iron, and he named it the Iron Apiga. It was fashioned as a means of tormenting those who didn't pay their taxes. And what would happen is they would come up to the Iron Apiga, and he would lift her arms around them, and then through a series of uh, mechanics and uh, pulleys, she would tighten her grip around the person in a fierce hug. Here's what Polybius writes about it to describe this uh, contraption, the, the Iron Apiga. When the man offered her his hand, he made the woman rise from her chair and taking her in his arms, drew her gradually to his bosom. Both her arms and hands, as well as her breasts, were covered with iron nails, so that when Nabi rested his hands on her back and then by means of certain springs, drew his victim towards her, he made the man thus embraced say anything and everything. Indeed, by this means, he killed a considerable number of those who denied him money. So basically, it was an iron-shaped woman covered in nails that they would, you know, have hug someone uh, to death. Oh my gosh, I wonder if that's where the term hug to death came from. I'm gonna have to look that up. In 1895, Arthur Machen 
wrote an episodic horror novel titled The Three Imposters, in which a similar device named the Iron Maid was used. Further back in the 5th century, the book The City of God, written in Latin, tells the story of the Roman general Marcus Attilius Regulus, who was locked in a nail-studded box in which he was forced to stay awake, lest the nails pierce his skin. So reading about these different accounts um, I would say that the Iron Maiden was definitely around in the medieval era, although it might have been shaped differently or called something different. Um, there's clearly written records of something like that being used. It just may have taken on a different name later on. If you're still on the fence about whether or not the Iron Maiden was real and you think that maybe they weren't, they just weren't that violent, just wait until you hear about this next one I'm about to tell you about because I think it's even worse and is plenty documented, which includes not only replicas or actual original artifacts that you can find in different museums, but drawings, period drawings of this item and it is called the Judas's Cradle. Take a deep breath because torture just got totally whack. I mean this is like the most violent thing I can think of. Well maybe not the most violent but it is so violent. So let's talk about this Judas's Cradle or chair also called Levi in French which uh, translated to wake or night watch and Judas wig in German, Kula de Guida in Italian. It is also known as the vigil, the guided cradle or the Bach or the watch. So all these different names, which just kind of proves that Iron Maiden, just because maybe the name wasn't historically known about, doesn't mean that it wasn't. But moving back on to Judas's Cradle, let's picture a pyramid. Hold on, I gotta take a sip of wine before we get into this, okay? All right, picture a mini pyramid, about one foot tall or so, okay? It's placed on a wooden pedestal that's probably, let's say, five feet in the air, six feet in the air maybe. This tiny pyramid, well not tiny, but relatively small pyramid is placed on a pedestal and the tip of it is sharpened and well oiled and points towards the sky. Above this contraption is the man or woman, who knows, um, they are naked and they are suspended with a system of pulleys and that pointy tip of the pyramid is just below their anus, vagina, or scrotum. Uh, I'm serious. You heard me correctly. That is absolutely what I just said. The pyramid, which used to represent something sacred, was turned into something abominable. It was made of iron or wood, and this instrument was simply a means of torment and pain, because with its shape, it would not uh, necessarily completely impale a victim all the way to kill them, but it would present them with unimaginable pain as their various orifices were stretched or ripped. That's not to say that people didn't die from this because they certainly did. Uh, believe it or not, in the 15th century, Judas's Cradle was created by an Italian man, Ippolito Marsili, as a more humane alternative to other forms of punishment, which maybe it was considering there was also the burning of flesh, uh, cutting off of flesh, breaking bones on a wheel, etc. But another record states that it was invented in Spain during the 16th century Inquisition. This is likely because they took away from its original use when the Italian inventor created Created it, it was a form of uh, using it for sleep deprivation. So the way it worked was the victim was tied up naked and suspended above the pyramid, and for a certain number of hours they must stay awake. The point being sleep deprivation instead of actual anal or vaginal or scrotal torment. If they fell asleep before their hours of deprivation, however, they were dropped onto the point. Ouch. Double out. Like, that's like not even double out. That's just like, let's start screaming right now. That sounds horrible. So uh, during the Spanish Inquisition, this changed. The tip was actually guided into the orifice, 
hence the term guided cradle. And uh, different weights and pulleys that were on the person's body were used to either stretch or push or whatever, just horrible, horrible things. And it was a method used for truth-telling during um, those the Inquisition, but then it also became used in other investigations as a method to get the truth out of someone. So if the victim did not spill the truth or answer the question, they were lowered further onto the point or stretched uh, in a different direction. Their legs moved around to make it more painful. The cradle was rarely, if ever, cleaned, so victims often died from infection if they didn't die from the actual torment. So the device could be used for hours, even days, and often if it was going to be used for days, they would uh, give the victim a respite overnight. They would still remain suspended above the uh, contraption, but there wouldn't be any torment overnight. Now, this was not done for mercy. You might be like, oh, well, they allowed a respite. No, they only did it to prolong the torment and stave off death so that they could keep impaling this person over and over again for several days. Horrible. Now that we've talked at length about things that make us cringe, let's move on to the next part of the podcast where I talk about books. Woo, yay! All right, hold on. Sip for wine, everyone. Cheers. Uh, What did you guys think about those three fabulous torture devices? Aren't they insane? And aren't you glad that we don't use those today? I am. Cheers to that. This week your book of choice. This is what I'm, um, so since I've been uh, working on researching for this podcast and future podcasts, I am going to give you a book, um, that I have that I love. I bought several years ago and I use it in my research for my own stories. And then it came really in handy when I was trying to talk, uh, this week about different types of torture. It's called What a Way to Go and it's by Jeffrey Abbott. And here's the description. A gruesomely hilarious and fascinating pop history account of methods of execution from around the world and through the ages. In this wickedly humorous book, Jeffrey Abbott describes the effectiveness of instruments of torture and reveals the macabre origins of familiar phrases such as gone west or drawn a blank. Covering everything from the preparation of the victim to the disposal of the body, what a way to go is everything you ever wanted to know about the ultimate penalty and a lot you never thought to ask. If you're interested in torture and, uh, various ways in which people were executed around the world throughout the ages, I say go ahead and take a look at that book because it was really good. The next item of business is a book of mine. This week I'm going to recommend my forthcoming novel, Ribbons of Scarlet, which releases on October 1st. And here is a quote. The French Revolution comes alive through the eyes of six diverse, complex women in the skilled hands of these amazing authors. And that is a quote from Martha Hall Kelly, the author of Lilac Girls. And here's the description of the book. Ribbons of Scarlet is a timely story of the power of women to start a revolution and change the world. In late 18th century France, women do not have a place in politics. But as the tide of revolution rises, women from gilded salons to the streets of Paris decide otherwise, upending a world order that has long oppressed them. Blue-blooded Sophie de Grouchy believes in democracy, education, and equal rights for women, and marries the only man in Paris who agrees. Emboldened to fight the injustices of King Louis XVI, Sophie aims to prove that an educated populace can govern itself, but one of her students, fruit seller Louise Adieu, is hungrier for bread and vengeance than learning. When the Bastille falls and Louise leads a women's march on Versailles, the monarchy is forced to bend, but not without a fight. The king's pious sister, Princess Elizabeth, takes a stand to defend her brother, spirit her family to safety, and restore the old order, even at the risk of her head. 
But when the fanatics used the newspapers to twist the revolution's ideals into new tyranny, even the women who toppled the monarchy are threatened by the guillotine. Putting her faith in the pen, brilliant political wife Manon Roland tries to write a way out of France's blood-soaked reign of terror, while pipe-bearing Pauline Lyon and steely Charlotte Corday embrace violence as the only way to save the nation. With justice corrupted by revenge, all the women must make impossible choices to survive, unless unlikely heroine and courtesan's daughter, Amélie de saint amaranthe can sway the man who controls France's fate, the fearsome Robespierre. Yay! That was such a fun book to write uh, with my fellow authors. It's um, There's six authors. We wrote about seven different characters, and it's woven in a way that it reads as one author of a single novel. It's really cool, and I can't wait for you guys to read it. And right now, if you pre-order it, you can get a free short story written by Kate Quinn, as well as the option to pre-order a signed print book by all six of us if you get it from The Strand. Um, I'll have those links for you on the show notes, or you can check out my website, enightauthor.com, and find it there. Question from reader this week is from Sarah, who is from Detroit, and she says, how do you select the names of your characters? All right. Spin my wine as I dig into this fun question. So for me, uh, it's a it's a pretty lengthy process. For one thing, I want to make sure I'm not using a similar name to any other characters. I have to have a list of names I've already used. That includes secondary characters because I don't want I write a lot of series, so I don't want my readers to get confused about a particular person's name. And it also has to do with uh, where they're from. I write a lot of Scottish Scottish fiction, so my names are often uh, Scottish in nature. I want to make sure that I am true to that sort of like cultural name. Dependent on what clan they're from, that will be what their surname is, um, so to speak, or any nicknames they might have. Knowing those things, then I'll go and look at the various different names, and I like to see what they mean, like what they're... You know, does this mean need, does this name mean strong? Does this name mean light? Does this name mean beautiful? Does this name mean wolf or bear or tree? Like, what does what's the meaning behind the name? Because I like it to sort of match that character. The other thing is, I have to make sure. So this happens often. I'll have you know my main heroine, heroine, and the secondary characters' names all sort of either rhyme or start with the same letter. So I have to make sure that they're not like rhyming and they're not with the same letter just so that a reader isn't confused in the beginning of the book when everyone's being introduced that they're not the same people so that's pretty much how I go into naming my characters it's it's fun I, I, I don't know it's neat they're like people it's like when you're naming a child like you have to go through and make sure that you're picking the perfect name for that person and I think there's only been once or twice that I've gone in afterwards and sh- the name of a character throughout the story, not a secondary character. I do that all the time once I realized I'm doing a rhyming game. Um, but uh, as far as changing the name, that's only happened a couple of times. Um, most recently, probably was last year, I ended up changing a clan name about halfway through the book because I realized there was actually a connection with a different clan. Uh, and I like to uh, obviously add a lot of different sort of um, history to my books, even though I'm not going straight history. Um, I still like if I find those connections, I want to make sure I put them in there. So um, that's a bit about how I name my characters. Now my question to you listeners this week is what was a book you read recently that changed your life? I want to hear about it because I got added to my to be read list. So if you um, could please email us those or message us on social media with your favorite books and how it changed your life, I would love to hear about it. 
If you have any other questions, please feel free to email us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. Our website is historybooksandwine.buzzsprout.com. We'll have the show notes for today's episode listed there. They can also be found on iTunes with our podcast. We are now on Spotify, Google, and Alexa. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. And remember, you can always send us questions at historybooksandwine at gmail.com. We hope you enjoyed hearing about some of our fun historical tidbits. Thank you so much for tuning in, and be sure to check out new episodes published weekly on Thursdays. Next up with more torture is Lori on September 12th, Madeline on September 19th, and then our next happy hour is September 26th, where we'll be discussing even more torturous things. So I hope you all have a great week. Cheers! Cheers!